This podcast focuses on regulatory and corporate developments in highly regulated spaces. I'm Christian Bax, and I used to regulate medical marijuana. I'm Tony Glover, and I used to regulate alcoholic beverages, casino gaming, and tobacco. Now together, we're regulated. This week's guest is Adam Crabtree. Adam is the founder and CEO of NCS Analytics, which is headquartered in Denver, Colorado. Adam began his career in banking and was managing sales operations and compliance with Tier 1 Bank. And then he noticed the inherent flaws and systemic disconnect between banks and their local and state regulators. And so using his background, he has created a company called NCS Analytics, and they use some machine learning, some AI, and and basically are on the bleeding edge of regulatory compliance and helping state governments, local governments, banks tease out information from high-risk companies, make that information workable, and create policies around that structure. And Adam and I know each other because he, he works in the cannabis industry. I work in the cannabis industry. We have a few mutual friends, and, and we sat down to talking about eight months ago. COVID obviously intervened, but Adam, thanks so much for finally being able to schedule some time to jump on the pod with me and Tony. I appreciate the offer, and yeah, eight months, uh, it doesn't seem quite that long. It seems both eight days and eight years ago. <laughs> Agreed. So you're, where in the world are you right now? Denver. That's where we're headquartered, and this is uh, my office. How's business been amid COVID? It's been pretty good. It's forced a lot of tech adoption that I think would have taken a lot longer. The whole shift to remote teams and things like that, the need to be able to collect data and information from afar. It's also absolutely killed my travel. Never thought I'd miss the inside of an airplane, but desperately do these days. So how are you staffed? Do you have teams that are spread around the country or are you centrally located in Denver? The majority of my employees are here in Denver. I do have some consultants and support staff around the country, but the main office is here. Tell the audience what NCS does. So we take huge swaths of data. We get between 15 and 20 million data points a week backwards, forwards, upside down, and sideways, and distill all of that information into actionable, relevant insights for our clients. Our clients are only governments and financial institutions. And so we work across the high-risk spaces or the SINs, alcohol, tobacco, smuggling, bootlegging, sales suppression, starting to dabble a bit in opioids, and then obviously cannabis. How do you get into doing data analytics for SIN industries? As you mentioned, I was in banking, managed banks here in Denver for the better part of a decade. And like most in that role, I was managed to a balance sheet. So I was trying to figure out how to get part of Colorado's billion dollars in sales into my institution for deposits. Realized there was some pretty big compliance headaches that would have to go through. I've got some mathematical chops. And so I was kind of putting those to use in ways that I could get compliance comfortable with it. And then one thing led to another, and that got me thrown in front of the then governor's czar and I think former guest on the show, Andrew Friedman, who posed the question, if banks can get to this level of detail, why can't the government use it? So took that home, did a lot of thinking on it, wasn't quite sure where I sat in that, hadn't given uh, that realm a ton of thought and came back realizing that there's definitely a need in the reg tech space to help governments get more efficient, get better results as budgets are constrained and kind of where we kicked it all off. 
talk to me about that meeting. So what brought you in specifically to go talk to Andrew Friedman in Colorado? So he was kind of the gatekeeper of sorts. If you wanted to work in anything to do on the cannabis, especially on the banking side, you had to go talk to him. And he will happily tell you that he heard, you know, a dozen banking solutions a week. And he'll even begrudgingly or sometimes happily admit that he ignored me through the first half of my presentation (laughs) until I got to a point that he was like, wait, what did you just say? And we were already into some of the pilot mathematics I had done. And at that point, he actually had me start my entire presentation over to where he could listen to me from the beginning. But because we took a different approach, I wasn't selling an ATM or a Bitcoin or whatever it was. This is, you know, big data, math-driven, predictive analytics. It's a much different perspective than what was on the market at the time. I've heard you tell that story before, and Andrew Friedman is a smart guy, right? He's a Harvard guy. He he reminds me a lot of Cheaty from The Good Place. I actually texted him that when I was I was about halfway through season one. I was like, Friedman, you realize you're Cheaty from The Good Place? And his text back to me was, you're like the fifth person who's told me that. <laughs> Well, well, I'll, I'll admit, you know, obviously, Andrew went to Harvard. I went to a non-Harvard law school. So why don't we talk about some of the basics I think will be helpful for our audience. Can you break down? So, so what is a data platform? Essentially, the platform is, from our client's perspective, the UI, UX, so the user experience and user interface. And so you've basically, if you think about it like a car, the the platform aspect from our clients is the body of the car. It's the outside. It's what you see when you're walking around. And then the part that I love is the mathematics, which is your engine underneath it. And so the platform allows it to not only do all of the fancy stuff we do under the hood, but it allows us to display it in a curated manner that makes sense. When you look at the amount of data we pull in each week, it's borders on useless if it were going to a human. You couldn't take that amount of data in any reasonable amount of time and get anything that you actually cared out of it unless you were looking for such basic things that why would it even matter? So by running it through the the engine and then putting it out onto the platform, it allows us to not only convey that information in a useful manner, but do a lot of work around how our clients actually interface with that data. And so what, when the customer is looking at it's sort of making a purchasing decision, engaging a company like yours. What's the usefulness of the product? What's the intent of making that purchase? I would say that the backbone of any of the regulated cannabis markets is a tracking system, be that the centralized system, so your metric, your biotrack, your leaf, be that the point of sale systems, but the ability to track it from conception to when it goes out the door. The greatest strength and the biggest Achilles heel of those systems, though, is one and the same, and it's the amount of data they put out there. And so you want that data, you want the granularity of it, but you it's difficult to take and isolate out the kernels that you actually care about. So out of that 15 million data points we get a week, there might be 1,000 to 10,000 across our footprint that are actually worth looking at. But how are you going to cipher through that? And so with those tracking systems, 
amazing at the level of detail they get. You could at any given time see the second by second life cycle of these plants, but how do you get down to that five second period two Wednesdays ago that something ran afoul that you wanna know about and how do you do it fast enough that you can actually impact it before it's too late? Can you give me an example? And again, I'm, I'm playing the, the role of a listener who, who maybe doesn't work all the time in the cannabis world. Can you give us a, a for instance, of a, a situation that could go wrong during that process that NCS would help get granular on? Whether it's the growing or the manufacturing or anything like that. Currently, with all of that data, you could look back a year from now, take your time, distill down to, hey, we think this may have been out of bounds. But at this point, any ability to actually collect something past that data is long gone. Now, if I tell you that yesterday these plants were harvested and they weren't as expected, so too big, too small, too much waste, etc., you actually have the ability to go look at that. There's still the physical aspect that is present. So we're not doing a quarterly look back or an annual look back or if you're dealing in tax side, you know, look back from four years ago, something along those lines, we're actually enabling you to look at where there are potential issues while those issues are still relevant. What made you decide on focusing on high risk industries? So high risk is unclean, for lack of a better term. When you're looking at cannabis, it's created this very interesting, almost protected environment for companies like mine and a whole plethora of other companies where they are able to compete in one of the first truly new sectors we've seen here in a long time where the big guys don't want to play. You don't see Oracle coming into this. You don't see SAP coming into this. You don't see any of the Microsoft, any of those. Some of them will get into licensing and pieces like that that are very on the edge, but they won't actually come and play directly with this because they feel currently that it isn't worth whether it's the size or irritating the federal government or whatever it is. So it's allowed this Petri dish where we don't have to compete against the monsters and yet we can still flourish. And so by starting out there, it's allowed me to blossom into some other areas. And so it's pretty interesting how these baby companies, myself included, have been able to grow without the the outside pressure. When you first started this, what, what were the primary variables that you focused on in order to try to create some structure around what your predictive analytics were going to look like? So I had to be able to validate that every dollar coming into an institution was from a state legitimate sale. It needs to be the right amount. It needs to be the right products. It has to be disclosed on their taxes, all of those factors. And some of that came from the games I got to see in my banking days. So I knew some of the the tricks that were played, some of it because I worked in bars all through college and grad school, owned a bar for a short period of time. So understanding all the ways that the system is skirted, how to combat that, and then how to do it in an environment where the data is sorely lacking. I really liked the point that you made about the entrepreneurship ecosystem in cannabis right now that has kept a lot of gorillas out. And so it has these insurgent companies that are able to start up in this estuary that ironically, the fact that it's illegal has created. How far down the road do we need to get, do you think, before Oracle and Microsoft and those type of companies come in and start trying to compete with you or buy you? No. I mean, let's hope. Um, (laughs) Your mouth to God's ears. (laughs) 
think a lot of it's going to depend on the federal perspective. I think a lot of it will depend on the global outlook. And at the end of the day, they're businesses. So at this point in time, there isn't enough revenue to take that risk. But once it gets to the point there is, it'll be a different conversation. That's people, you know, hammering the the big banks like, why won't they bank this? It's a $10 billion industry. Our top, what, five banks are all trillion dollars in assets. Right. You think they're going to piss off any regulator over a couple of billion dollars? That's not how capitalism works. Right. We saw that with, I don't want to call them out by name, but there was a nationally relevant cannabis bank that went through its own regulatory issues with a transaction and basically just like divested its cannabis assets. It just like, <laughs> I mean, literally was a phone call or an email to lawyers or some of these principals saying, hey, we're not going to bank you next month. They just turned it away to, to execute the transaction like it was nothing, even though they were probably one of the most relevant institutions for cannabis banking the slice of the pie was nothing compared to what their overall aggregate portfolio was. Right. Well, the bottom line is that banks are risk adverse. I mean, you see that in, it's taking everything in my power not to ask Adam a ton of questions about his past working in bars and owning a bar. But, you know, I spend most of my time working in liquor licensing, buying and selling liquor licenses, and banks are hesitant to loan on something as innocuous and as common as a liquor license. So it does not surprise me that somebody would fold up shop at the first sign of turbulence in this industry. I want to ask something about some that past that you referenced. So without giving any specific company or people away, can you can you give me an example of like some of the games that you saw played that that give me an example of something that you have basically since solved. So something that's almost not possible under what you, the framework that you have that you you basically said oh no i saw this going on when and we can just do we can pull this information in order to just stamp it yeah out. actually one of my favorites and i know it's still occurring because there was a great audit done in the city and county of denver just got published in march worth checking out but back in my banking days when i was dealing with some oil and gas aspects one of my Things that made me both shake my head and kind of laugh is the tax returns that were put on my desk were not the same tax returns that were requested from the IRS. So there's a form that if you've ever gotten a larger loan from a bank, it's called a 4056T. And so essentially you're saying, hey, I can request your tax returns directly from the IRS. And it's a way to validate that you're not giving us two different sets of books. And we saw that. And obviously there's different motives there. You want the bank to think you've made as much money as possible and you want the IRS to think you've made the least amount of money possible. And so the fact that you are able to report different numbers to different sources is a huge gap. So we solved that by tapping both sources. In that audit from the city and county of Denver, they found a good percentage, I want to say it was above 20, but I'm not positive enough to quote me on that, where the numbers reported to the local government and the numbers reported to the state government were different numbers within the same state. And we ran across that early on where it's still one of the biggest discrepancies we've seen where they told the county they sold a million dollars in the month. They told the state for that same month, they only sold $400,000. The two tax systems don't talk to one another you can tell who they were more afraid of and who they're being honest with. And so by tapping into these systems individually and getting that data and then comparing how it's appearing across these data streams makes it much more difficult to tell different stories to different people. What do state governments do to, 
to functionally accumulate that information? Does it, is, is it just completely missing things that you're seeing now that just weren't on? Uh, I mean, with you both being regulatory attorneys, you could probably go at this better than I do. But essentially, for any cash intensive business, be it cannabis, be it a car wash, a laundromat, a bar, a lot of the audit work and a lot of that analysis is incredibly manual. It's still super old school where you count how many customers they had and then you approximate how much the average customer spends. And then you're like, wait a second, my rudimentary math says you should have reported $100. You told me you only made $10. The very advanced ones will start looking at like inventory turn times and stuff like that. But there's an entire industry that's built around a legal industry, mind you, built around, uh, they're called zappers. And all it does is refactor your point of sale system for a restaurant to hide like every third transaction. And so this isn't a game that Wait, wait, what? Talk, <laughs> go a little deeper on that. What a zapper is. If you look up a zapper, and I think the dude that built them is still in jail. But essentially, it... Yeah, um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. <laughs> Tony, yes. you heard about this? Did, is this right? DPR yeah, thing? Okay, so you guys need to walk... You guys both need yeah, to walk me through what a zapper is, because I don't know. Device. So it's essentially... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's diverting funds, essentially, from the tote. And there's an old-fashioned way to, of doing this. There's a, a popular movie theater chain, which I will not name that was just in the news this week for doing something similar where they were skimming it's an old-fashioned skim but with technology behind it so they were skimming the proceeds from certain movies so they wouldn't have to remit certain fees to the distributor it's an old school mindset of skim with a new school technology backing it so think about it like this. You go to a, the bar, you buy a beer for five bucks, you pay in cash. The bartender, you watch him walk over, they hit the button on the till, you don't think anything of it. Well, they didn't actually ring that beer in and that five bucks went directly into their pocket. But what a zapper does is it does it automatically, but it also, depending on how complex you're going, deletes the inventory out, clears any record of that transaction existing. And so it's just a high tech way of pocketing cash. But this has been a cat and mouse game in the cash intensive industries forever. So there are different ways that you can get back to what should have been, which is where we come into play. I do have some general I, I do have some general advice for people that are, are, are attempting to play a POS or a receipt game. Don't do um, it. One is don't do it. But also, <laughs> if you're going to turn in documents and numbers to a state agency, you want to make sure that you turn in the same set of numbers every time you do it. Because it raises some questions <laughs> when you have a zapped version and an unzapped version that come across somebody's desk. And that's mm -hmm. when people start asking questions. I mean, I suspect that in Florida, it's mostly the old school way, just going in and manually changing things and, and manually removing funds. But yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating issue. What was the transition like from when you sat down with Andrew Friedman and he asked you, okay, so if you could do this for banks, why couldn't you do this for the government? And you're still working with a bank to launching NCS and, and having this whole leaving banks behind and having your own entrepreneurial venture in data. Well, analytics. my family thought I was crazy, thought my parents were going to disown me, which was fun. I uh, grew up super small town you know, went to the big C for college, all of that, knocked out a couple of master's degrees, landed this great banking job. But I was, I realized that there wasn't much room for advancement. I was younger than my peers and I was bored. 
So I was like, you know what? I'm at the right age. Let's just throw, take a flyer, see where this ends out. And so at first there was definitely some shock. My parents are like, what do you think you're doing? And then it was kind of the, there was a lot that comes with working for the government that had to be kind of refactored that wasn't accounted for originally in NCS. Even simple things like who's paying you? One of the things that is great about NCS is my checks read state of somebody or X agency or the financial institutions, but we don't actually deal directly with any industry we analyze. So I have little to no contact with any of the, we're up to like 17 or 1800 licensees under monitoring now. Not a single one of them do I have direct contact with. And so originally there was some cost sharing for the banks and things like that and stuff. But you, as you move into the more structured and regulated space, you have to take all of those things into consideration. So there's a lot of refactoring to be done. States are also incredibly hard. Governments in general are incredibly hard to sell to as a small company the deck is somewhat stacked against you. There is a a certain amount of name recognition that regulators find comfort in. I mean, you know, if you go to Oracle, it's this size and you're getting X, Y, and Z, and they've got trillions of dollars and thousands of employees. So it's a very low risk proposition. But when I was starting out, and I think probably one of the first times you and I met, it was me and maybe two other people. And It's kind of like, all right, he's got a decent idea, but is he going to be around tomorrow? And so that, I would say, was one of the large challenges as well. In prepping for this, I didn't recall that you actually came in and talked to me Mm -hmm. formally. Like I remember the meeting now. And I I candidly didn't understand. I I had the same Andrew Freeman moment, but I wasn't bold enough to say I need you to repeat everything that you just said. Because by the, you're right, by the end of that presentation, you're, intuitively understand that the, that what you're doing is important and is 10 times better than the analog route that your compliance staff is already having to to do how long did it take you to learn the procurement process and to actually lock down and be able to make some money off of state government? So those are two separate questions. I will let you know as soon as I learn and understand the procurement process. Uh, every day is a challenge. It's a, it's a it's a lifelong process. <laughs> is it is it different? Is it markedly different depending on the states that you're going into? So I mean, it's everything from their process. There was one state that we had to register for their procurement system. The application was 170 pages. It got rejected the first time because at one point in my name there was a period after ink. And another point, there wasn't a period after ink, and they rejected the whole application to some of the other states that it's bordering on a handshake where it's like, yeah, this sounds great. Let's go. And everywhere in between, I would say that the tech side is also, I mean, I've had single page security audits where it's like, oh yeah, this is awesome. Everything looks good to one was 800 questions. And it was right up there with like a colonoscopy upon the fun level and the level they were getting in the detail. And so it's incredibly different. Same with the private industry. Some are right there as a handshake and some is a vendor procurement process that rivals some of our more complicated states. What are the case studies that you point to, to where you've, you've really hit it out of the park. I mean, we've got stories that rival John Grisham. I've had dirty politicians. <laughs> I've had hidden bank accounts. I've had all sorts of fun offshore activity. I had a mega church on the take 
in one of ours that they were funneling cash through a massive church. I, I think that was John Grisham's The Pastor, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> we're still working on naming rights and, you know, how I appear in the book. And then there's the basics. I mean, we can show cash positive ROI of, you know, low end, a couple bucks for every dollar they spend all the way up into the hundreds of dollars per dollar spent because the tax gap is, can be, historically speaking, incredibly large in a lot of these industries. I mean, according to the IRS, their most recent study, all businesses, excluding cannabis, the tax gap is about 16, 17% just based on underreporting. Now, if you do that with just cash intensive businesses, the number goes up dramatically. What do you think your biggest aha moment has been in cannabis? I would say the lack of understanding between those in the industry and those not in the industry, both from regulators and even people that are now sitting outside on my team. Like there is such a lack of understanding about the nuances of this space if you are not in it. And so we've been in places where the person that is deemed the in charge of it didn't really ask for the job. They don't necessarily want the job. And now they have to figure out this entirely new, incredibly complex industry. And so I would say there's a huge... Wait, are, are you talking about me or are you talking about somebody else? <laughs> I mean, I never sat in your office. <laughs> I, I, I have definitely had a job that I definitely didn't want before, but go ahead. <laughs> All jokes aside from Christian and Andrew and things like that, it also has led to younger high-level regulator than I would say there's a lot of other places. Yes, Andrew looks like he's 12, but he also was very young when he was given that job as the first czar, you wouldn't have seen that in a more historical space. But I don't know that anyone else really wanted that job. And so they're like, hey, hey, Harvard, go take this job. It's yours. And so that's kind of been fun is I have gotten to work with a lot more younger, more technologically savvy regulatory bodies and heads than you do in some of the the other spaces, if that makes sense. Have you seen improvements in the space and, and how cannabis is regulated as a result of these states or local governments working with you guys? We have. The better understanding, the better resource allocation. We've got some great ones out on the West Coast where they've really embraced more of a task force where it, it's holistic. And I know this doesn't happen often, but it's you know 10 departments coming around a table together and actually working together at a common goal fed by technology. And so they're able to level set, say, here's what we're seeing. Here's what the tech's telling us. Whose department does this fall under? Who backs them up? How is the best way to attack this? And so it's pretty dang cool to see. It's breaking down some of those silos. It's not territorial. It's, it's, it's pretty fun. What year did you get into the cannabis industry? 2015. 2015. You know, it's, it's really interesting that you made that point about regulators and that dynamic because that's when I became regulator over in Florida, right? And. Yeah. If you looked other places, it wasn't just in Florida, but there's not just the, the I don't necessarily want this job, but it's also super political. And then one sneaky thing, which I'm sure you have seen a little bit because you're, you're actually a little bit embedded with some of these state and local governments, is people misunderstand that a regulator, like the entity within an agency that regulates cannabis is they think it's autonomous when in reality it's it's basically like the dashboard right it's it's the thing that is interfacing with the industry but there's 
procurement and there's finance, there's HR, there's executive leadership, there's all these other moving parts of an agency. And if those other agencies don't like cannabis and they don't want to work, other parts don't want to work with you or help you, even if your administration is supportive, you can't get anything done because of internal politics. And I think that's changing a little bit, but there still is definitely that kind of inertia built into a lot of state governments. People who you would have, you'll never know their names, you never know what their jobs are, but who are kind of internally pretty antagonistic to, to better cannabis regulation. Oh, yeah. Especially on the tech side, tech usually touches a number of departments. And so if you've got one that's anti, you're not going anywhere. I have another related question to that. What what has been your experience with the like the the IT people from state government? Are they usually with it, or are they? Is it like dealing with a time capsule from like 1996? It's completely geography dependent. I mean, we see everything from cutting edge security, which. I have seen on the governmental side to we still run everything through a fax machine and everything in between. And so it really kind of depends on where tech falls in their state. Some of the places it's a fax machine. And I've actually, I had to go to Kinko's or whatever it's called now to fax in certain documents because we don't do email. Okay. Okay. And then other ones. Have they fully- literally don't do email because they don't have email or because what, why would you ever use a fax exclusively? So it was for something I had to sign and those, I couldn't scan and email the copy. Oh I actually had to fax it and God forbid they use DocuSign or eSign or whatever. You, no, 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 no. And so this one, I actually had to do an ink signature and then fax that. And I had to go to like Kinko's to pay the nickel to fax it or whatever it was. Cause I don't have a fax machine. I don't even have a landline in here. <laughs> so I, I know you because of your work in cannabis and it's very interesting, but you're working on a lot of industries besides cannabis that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. I listened to a podcast that you did almost a year ago, and you talked about some of the work that you were just starting to do in opioids. And I found that really interesting because you got into both the uses for data analytics in the legal, like prescriptive use of opioids, but also dealing with the illicit negative components of, you know, of heroin. Can, can you talk a little bit about that work? Because I thought it was just really cool and interesting. Sure. What's fun about how we do analytics is the core engine doesn't care what industry you're looking at. It is looking for specific behaviors and mathematical anomalies and things like that. It's all based on patents and things like that that I hold. But when we're applying it to opioids, we are, as you said, looking start to finish. So whether it's pill mills and overprescriptions, all the way to, hey, this last batch of heroin that hit the street is cut with fentanyl, we need to be more alert to it. And much like our work in cannabis, it's all about being able to react quicker, turning those deaths into recoveries. If I can tell you that what just hit the street has a higher probability in this neighborhood of killing people than the ambulances that sit 
or serve that area, the hospitals that are in that area need to have the extra precautions on hand to be able to deal with it. Not looking back being like, wow, you know, that last weekend in August, 2020, that was a rough one. No, let's say yesterday was a rough one. Let's say that that concert going on right now, something is out of bounds there and we need to address it while it's happening. It's, it's crazy to me, but there was actually just a Twitter post a week or two ago that somebody put up that got retweeted a lot saying, hey, warning, what just hit the street in Denver has fentanyl. And that was like the public service announcement and it went out on Twitter. And then that just blew my mind that that's how we're getting the word out there. But there are other ways that you could figure out that's what's occurring. And that's what we're aiming to do. How do you do that? How do you figure out that there's this problem in the school of fish of people who are potential heroin users? So it's going to be morbid. Have you guys seen the the show Dope on Netflix? It was like a Vice documentary. Yep, I know exactly. So you what remember you're about. on yep. episode two there in Baltimore, and the dude is talking about how it's good for business if he kills off a couple of people, because then it lets everyone else know how strong his stuff is. And I was mortified that this dude is on camera bragging about that. But it made me think, like, if there's an expected death rate. And you start getting to the point that you're exceeding that. And we do predicted values across our stuff, whether it's the price of, you know, a pre-roll or it's how much a plant is going to yield and things like that. Why can't I do a predicted value for this area for a certain outcome? So be it 911, poison control, opioids, whatever. And as soon as you exceed that by a, a certain margin, statistical margin, it sets in motion other things. So if I'm expecting, sorry to be morbid, that there are three overdose calls in the city block outside of my office for this weekend, and I hit 3.2 by noon on Saturday, that is telling me that there is something going on. That is telling me that that last batch that just hit the street isn't what it normally is. And maybe we should step up the ambulance presence there, or maybe we should step up some of the police presence there. And we should let the five closest hospitals know like, hey, we're already exceeded our overdose threshold and we're not even a quarter of the way through the weekend. And yes, it's morbid, but it's also incredibly effective and it would allow us to react accordingly. So if you're looking at the city of Denver or San Francisco or Chicago, and you're looking at a graph of deaths per day from opioids, is it, is it pretty consistent day over day, week over week, month over month, or is, is there a lot of noise in the system? I mean, there's obviously a lot of noise. There's also huge differences in how those numbers are counted, which is we're not going to get into how numbers are counted in this one, especially with our current one. But uh, I will say that one of the states that was held in high regard because they had such a low opioid epidemic, it actually turned out that the vast majority of their coroners didn't test for that. So it wasn't that it wasn't occurring, it's that it wasn't being measured. And so that's another one, like morgue data and finalized data and all of that, that's, that's too far gone. Let's tap 911, let's tap first responder, let's tap poison control. Let's tap those, those are real time. So if I can do uh, this hit and maybe we confirm it three months from now, but it, it's even a suspected on that and we're getting that in in real time that's where we can do more of the alerting the the actual cause of death and drug testing data is incredibly delayed incredibly hard to get to but there are other systems like we do in all of our areas that we can tap into that give us the insight we need how quickly does that move through the market and then be replaced by the stuff that's not 
necessarily laced with fentanyl. Do, do, do you keep seeing that for, for days, for weeks, for months? How long do you have to actually address that once you figured out that that's happened? I mean, I think it would depend on obviously how big the supply is. Is it a brand new supplier? Is this kind of their MO? One of the the things though is a lot of the the introduction of the adulterant, so whether it's fentanyl or it's super scary older brother car fentanyl, that isn't necessarily done at the manufacturing level. That's done as a supplement by the people looking to extend their product. So it may only be that handful of bags that he wasn't paying close enough attention and he cut too much in there, or it might be, you know, a huge batch. But if you watch Back to Dope or Drugs Inc. or any of those, they'll show that, hey, we dump the pile out on the table, we dump the pile out on this table, we shuffle it all together and we bag it and go. So it would kind of depend on how big that is, but it's that ability to react sooner that I think is crucial. Are you doing any work in alcohol these days? Uh, We've done some. Not active currently. I think alcohol is a fun one. It falls under sales suppression. I also didn't realize that in modern times, bootlegging was still a thing. It is. Absolutely. (laughs) My family actually comes from a long line of bootleggers. So, uh, you know, hopefully they don't think I'm too much of a trader there. But we were working on one project where... There was, you know, literal semis of booze coming in from neighboring states to circumvent the the target states liquor taxes because they were so incredibly high. And so I naive me thought bootlegging went away, you know, World War Two esque, but nope, still alive and well. Not only is bootlegging still a thing, I could probably guess in two guesses which jurisdiction you're talking about with the high taxes, because there's one particular state that I won't mention (laughs) that's continually had issues with border security as it relates to alcohol flowing in from the neighboring state, even on a retailer to retailer basis, because the taxes in state A are so high that a retailer located there can drive right down the street and purchase from another retailer in another state at a lower basis just because of the tax rate. So, yeah, it's it's absolutely an issue. <laughs> Florida, we don't have that issue because of our tax rate. Most of our bootlegging is really the old-fashioned version, pre-NASCAR version, as people in the woods with stills and maybe selling product on Craigslist. So it's hey, not as sexy as what you've seen. There's nothing wrong with a little moonshine if it's coming from a good place. <laughs> don't don't tell that to the division of alcoholic beverages and tobacco. <laughs> uh, it completely depends on which state you're in. Are you doing any work with COVID these days? We have looked at whether we wanted to dive into that. What's interesting is because of our ability to track movement and hubs of everything from a seed to an entire semi, we do have the ability to very quickly go into contact tracing. But honestly, with a company my size, you have to ensure that you don't continuously chase fads. You're never going to catch up. And so while we have been approached, nothing concrete enough for us to actually get into. You know, when I saw that story about the the digital thermometer, like the Bluetooth digital thermometer that was picking up these heat spikes, these fever spikes all over the country back in back in March that I thought of you because (laughs) it seems like but all, all of these sneaky ways to use data analytics to monitor 
where these spikes are pretty quickly. And and for those listening at home, if, if you're living under a rock, you didn't see the story. It was there's the there was this brand of digital thermometers, where the the company was was just looking at their aggregate data and they were and basically saying we're seeing these weird spikes of the amount of people that are having fevers that correlate to where the hot spots for COVID were and the the implication being that there's probably a predictive way to use these digital thermometers that are all feeding one data source to see where where COVID spikes are are jumping up around the country. Yep. Easily. And there's so many of those that you could look at. And if you found a way to tie them all back together, you could have an incredibly powerful tool. But where it gets difficult is you've got the HIPAA aspect, you've got data sets that can't necessarily technically be combined and privacy and all of that. And so I think like Google and Apple both released pretty intense tracking apps that were technologically speaking, truly phenomenal. Your phone could pick up if someone in your vicinity's phone had tested positive for COVID and let you know, but it isn't really going anywhere. People don't necessarily want that privacy to be compromised. And so it's a whole different realm that as much fun as the data geek in me would love, it's just just a little too complicated for a company our size. We don't have the clout. If you were running Oracle and you were asked by the federal government to get in and, and impact COVID, what are what are some of the things you think that we could do as a country with the data we have available in order to help what we're currently going through? I think the easiest and one that would be the least intrusive is technological applications to contact tracing. A lot of that is still manual. A lot of that is still done by humans that are making the phone calls and then scribbling down notes, either on a legal pad or typing in shorthand. And so the ability to not only do some of that data collection, but then build the mapping, the temporal connections and the here's where things intertwined. And here was actually the cause of, you know, this entire outbreak, getting that out of a human's hands and putting that into a very powerful analytic system, I think would be great. No one is that offended by contact tracing. You can easily de-identify patients down to numbers. You can even go as far as, you know, changing the grocery store to a string of letters to where the person looking at it can't even tell that there was a hot spot at Kroger's. They can just see that at whatever ABC 123 is, man, a lot of people got infected there. So that one is the easiest way to protect all of the parties while still getting back to what you need, in my opinion. It seems like there are a lot of Americans that don't really like the concept of giving away their personal security in order to take advantage of some of the the better elements of big data and data analytics. Has that impacted, you think, how people perceive you, how people perceive your company? Uh, uh, Like, what has been the fear of big data that you've run into since you've started this this career track? There is the discomfort with people's data. We've seen that with GDPR. We've seen that the rise in people wanting to be able to control their own data, their own destiny. I think people are just starting to realize how much you can learn about a person from their data. I think that even 
in the the people that have the highest understanding probably aren't even scratching the surface of what you can actually learn about a person from their data and so there is the discomfort there there also starts getting into a little bit of minority report so that movie where you are hey i know tomorrow you're going to go do this and so that's where things get a little bit gray then you look at people that argue the whether the it's worth it or not. I would say that one of the biggest, the tests of that, I think interestingly enough, is the Golden State Killer case. Obviously, there's this horrific killer and murder and all of that. But how they went about catching him, I don't know. And so do the ends justify the means? And that is, I would say, one of the biggest things we're going to see across this. I will tell you that the fact that I can now ping power meters if you fall under my jurisdiction and that's what the agency wants and all of those other disclaimers, people find creepy and it is, but it's also incredibly value to valuable to allow regulators to do their thing. And so how do you balance the two different ones? Like I personally have not submitted my DNA. I know my heritage. I haven't been in, my family hasn't been in the country this long, that long, but I know that I've got cousins that do. So technically my DNA is already in there. And like, how do you balance all of these things? And I'm a math guy, not a, not a policy wonk. And just backing up to the Golden State Killer case, that was a scenario where they ran some DNA through, I guess, one of the online ancestry type websites. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. So there was no, to my understanding, they basically had some old DNA. They submitted the, they did the the coding on it. They had to submit it. It's not like they took a bloody whatever and sent it in, but they sent the genetic code to a private company that does these genome mapping things. And it came back with, hey, here are the 20 potential people it could be. And then they obviously were very able to quickly narrow down by geography, age, and things like that. And they shut a cold case from the 70s and 80s, which again, horrific person. I don't know, man. It's difficult. One of the classic cases of big data is the Target diapers scandal. Do you know about this? Target, okay, Target had a had a PR issue because people figured out that Target was sending them ads for diapers. So Target makes a lot of, they make a ton of money off of diapers. But Target is also a hub for everything else that you need, right? So they could see just from your purchasing history, like if, if a woman's like buying folic acid, right, or she's buying a book or a magazine about childhood, they can they know exactly like when you're planning to get pregnant, and then they can pretty accurately predict that you are now pregnant. And then they start sending you you advertisements for diapers in the mail. And I think there was a there was a specific I, I forget the case study where I read the case study, but there was a, a dad who like called the local target and and like cursed them out because you're like you're sending diaper ads to my daughter and found out his daughter was pregnant like the next week. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, so also on the political side, like people can use all of that information to find your, not just your register, your voter registration, but your cars, where you live, your magazine subscription, your pets, not even getting into your search history and, and being able to buy that information. They know exactly what you're going to vote for on certain issues based on their data set. But I think the biggest issue is trust, whether or not people trust the ultimate use of that information is not going to be 
basically weaponized, right? Because I think you have a lot of Americans who look at something that's just to us insidious, like a social score in China, right, where you have a national government that's actually pretty openly using big data in order to suppress. And I think that scares some people. This is a rabbit hole. What I think is even scarier than the outward suppression is, have you read Nudge? No. So it is, it earned uh, Richard Thaler a Nobel, actually got into email correspondent work with some of his people, fanboyed out, it was amazing. But essentially it's centered around what is called choice architecture. And it is the belief, libertarian paternalism. It is the belief that you are free to make whatever decision you want. I am free to curate your options. And the ability to manipulate choices solely based on how the data is presented is deeply disturbing. They can dictate what ends up on like 75% of your lunch tray simply by how they present the food, not changing the food, not making any of disgusting, the order, the colors, things like that. They can make those choices for you. So that's where it gets dangerous to me. If I know that much about you, and we've seen this in the election stuff, that I know what appeals to you, I can tailor every word that comes out of my mouth, every movement I make to appeal to you on an individual, and you have no idea. So if you ever want to really be grossed out about how some of this stuff can come and play, read Nudge. It's a phenomenal book. It earned him the Nobel Prize, and choice architecture is deeply fascinating and disturbing at the exact same time. Okay, so there there's there's two things, right? There's two certainties that I'm I'm aware of. One is this this concept of data analytics and assimilating all of this information into useful things is not only not going anywhere but is is going to continue to evolve and and play a larger role in our lives, right? So that's moving one direction. But then you also have you're getting more and more demonstrable examples of people who are misusing or governments that have misused this data and there's getting more and more counterfactuals to the 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 progress that we're making it's like what could you do to to help put some guardrails on how government can use your data or private companies i was gonna say it's not just government i mean private companies i don't know if you watched the tech hearings last week they were they were pretty brutal about this but i think It has to, there has to be a base level of understanding and acceptance from both sides. If you're going to engage in XYZ, here's what that means. If you do not want to be, here's the steps you have to take, which is actually kind of the foundation of choice architecture. But I think that one of the things that people don't understand, especially when it comes to their data, is if you're not paying, you're what's on the menu. Mm -hmm. So there is truly no such thing as a free lunch. Those apps that you have on your phone that are completely free and magical. No, they're not free. They're making their money on selling your data to someone else. Now, if you go buy it and you no longer have to watch ads and all of that, that's a different one. But I don't think people fully understand even social media how the terms and conditions you're agreeing to and every once in a while you see those chain letters pop up of i don't consent to blah 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 that's awesome that that's your status it means absolutely nothing yeah you consented to the t's and c's of these platforms when you signed up just because you throw that up means absolutely nothing so you either have to come to terms with the implications of your choice or don't be on those platforms 
And I think that's the hard part for a lot of people. I think we've seen that pretty clearly with something like TikTok, where we're not necessarily putting in the ground and putting dirt on it yet, but TikTok has some, there's some pretty strong questions, but they, their, their core user base is so young that even if you presented them with some potential problems of, of the security of their phone or the information that they're providing to TikTok, they, they don't know how to process that information anyway because, you know, we have children who have access, who are giving their information up. And by the time they're 18, you know, kids now have been using their cell phones basically since they, as long as they could read or write at least. There's also a generational difference there. They're, the younger generation has never had, shouldn't say never, but in generally speaking, they have not had the privacy that was experienced by the older generations. And every generation has less privacy. I mean, our parents didn't have cell phones. And so if you weren't home, you weren't getting a hold of them. Hell, they didn't have answering machines. So if you weren't home when that phone rang, then you weren't getting a hold of them. Now down to... I can throw a watch on if I had a kid, I can put a GPS watch and see where they're at and it can automatically alert me if they go outside of a geofence. And so the the I feel like the younger generations have always been more public. They've posted, they've had social media since they were young. They've been comfortable with putting out information, pictures, statuses, what they're doing, what they're not doing, much more so than our parents' age who... I mean, cell phones with cameras and all of that. I couldn't, I remember getting charged 10 cents a text message on my first cell phone and God forbid I actually used it all the way down to now everything you do is live streamed. Another one of the takeaways from a pod that you did a little while ago was your emphasis on making this information and data open. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, that kind of passion of yours yeah, I currently got my own crusade and we lovingly call it the Transparency Project. But I do believe that transparency into this data, what it is, how it's being used, what it actually means is incredibly important. I also am a big believer that transparency is the cornerstone of good government. So being able to share this information in a curated manner that protects privacy while still allowing insight, I think is truly pretty awesome. It's where we're headed in a lot of different areas. We will be putting out here shortly the beginnings of our transparency projects. And essentially, our clients have determined the level of granularity they want to get to that still protects the businesses they regulate privacy, but still allows insight into what's happening in these markets. Are they growing? Are they shrinking? Where's that tax revenue going? How much of it's actually being collected? The ability to communicate that in not real time, but you know, on a on a very set and scheduled basis, be that weekly or monthly, I think is is truly uh, important. And so you'll see that flowing out for our clients in probably about a month, and it's going to start fairly limited with the curated data available, but we hope that by the end of the year, it's actually a fully interactive dashboard that Joe Citizen can go say, hey, here's how many new licenses were granted this week. Here's how many plants went in the ground. Here's how much was shipped. Here's what the favorite strain is, because we've got some that want to do some fun facts to increase engagement, but just some insight, getting rid of the 
the questions about what it is and the misinformation and not just cannabis. I think that could be crucial in just about every governmental space, but I'm only in charge of it for the one so far. So that's where we're going to start it off. All right. Well, this was great. We're going to let you go, get back to work. And Tony, you want to log us off? Until next time, please stay compliant.